we continue our second sermon on the advancement of the gospel. We covered verses 12 through 14 last week, and we'll continue on from verses 14 through 18, 15 through 18 this morning. I want to remind you guys of the, the big idea again. The advancement of the gospel can actually benefit from difficult personal circumstances by showing unbelievers the reality of our relationship to Christ and by showing believers that are, that are our example of joy and faithfulness, which gives them courage to proclaim the gospel. We don't always mean what we say. We don't always serve Christ with a right motive. As Paul continues describing his personal situations with the Philippians, he exposes the problems of mixed motives. In Philippians chapter 1, after Paul introduces the Philippians letter in verses 1 and 2, he pours out his affection to the church in verses 3 to 8, wrapping it up with a prayer for their love to mature, verses 9 through 11. Then beginning in verse 12, he describes his personal situation, and as he does, he models for them and for us what mature love looks like. We got to grow in that mature love. In verses 12 through 18, he talks about his present situation. And in verses 19 through 26, his possible future. We saw last time Paul's present circumstances were with a great joy, even though he's under house arrest, he's in prison, he's in jail, yet he's still having this great joy. So today, where are you in your life right now? Is there something hard, difficult that you're going through? Some trial, some tribulation, some hardship. Maybe you're sick. Maybe you have a family member who's sick. Maybe you lost somebody. Maybe there may be something going on in your life that you're like, it's hard. Life is tough right now for me. And we will pray for you and we will encourage you to pursue Christ in the midst of this. Because that's what we're called to do. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. We will be reading Philippians again, chapter 1 verse 12 through 18. It says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ that most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from good will. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and that I rejoice. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray to the Lord that he would speak to us. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning giving you thanks for allowing us, Lord, to gather here at your church, Lord, to be able to worship you, Lord, to be able to hear from your word, Lord. I pray that we would be blessed this morning by your, the reading of your scriptures, Lord, that you would speak to us, that we would repent of any wrongdoing in our lives and any sin that we may have, Lord, that we may want to be obedient to your word, Lord. We, we want to follow it, Lord, in our everyday life, Lord. Bless this time that we have together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Paul is joyful because, one, primarily, most importantly, is the progress of the gospel, the advancement of the gospel, verses 12 through 14, and just a little recap from last week. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, for the advancement of the gospel. No matter how high the waves splash against you, keep your eyes on Jesus and your trust in his purposes, and you will not sink. Our eyes should be fixated upon Jesus, not upon our circumstances, not upon what we're going through at that very moment, whether it may be difficult or hard. You will have joy, even though Paul is chained to one praetorian guard every four hours for 24 hours a day. He is joyful because first, the gospel is going out to the lost, verse 13, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. The future leader of Rome, even Caesar's household, are responding to the good news of Jesus Christ because of Paul's imprisonment, because of him 
being in jail. Wow. And Paul is joyful because the saved are more bold with the gospel. Verse 14. And that most of my brothers trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Even though Paul is chained, the gospel is not chained and the great apostle is filled with joy as he watches the power of the gospel save the lost and fire up those who are saved. What an encouragement to the Philippians. They'd be thinking the Lord is able to work out such a good thing in Paul's difficult circumstances. Maybe you know of a Christian or someone who's going through something tough right now and they're seeing, you're seeing the joy that they have in their life and you're like, how is that even possible? How could that even be? It is the Lord that's in them. And their eyes are fixated on Jesus, not on their circumstance that they're currently in. Then the Lord can work, also work out good in all the setbacks, obstacles, and trials that we would be currently be facing in our lives. Paul might have been tempted to write no more on the subject, but he was not one of those leaders with only, that gives only the good news of success. Paul knew his relationship with the Philippians requires transparency as wonderful as this gospel impact was all was not well in rome there were many christians who were sharing the gospel in rome with the right motives but some were proclaiming the gospel with wrong motives yet paul was joyful anyway because the proclamation of the gospel let's read verses 15 through 17 chapter 1 15 through 17 some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am pure, put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Look at verses 15 and 17. The main theme of verse 15 to 18 is proclaiming the gospel. Proclaiming that when the gospel is being proclaimed, there is an advancement. There's a progress to the gospel going out forth. How do we know in verse 15, underline preaching Christ. Verse 16, the defense of the gospel. Verse 17, proclaim Christ. And in verse 18, Christ is proclaimed. Whatever we do here at Acts Reformed Church, it's about proclaiming Christ. It's not about pastors. It's not about deacons. It's not about how this church looks from the exterior or the interior. It's about proclaiming Christ, him being the center of everything that we do here. And obviously Paul is talking about proclaiming Christ. Paul was the Roman, the Roman Christians were, and it should cause us to ask ourselves, are we proclaiming Christ? Are we proclaiming Christ? Wherever it is that we're at, in our house, school, at work, with our family, their friends, wherever it is that God puts us at. Maybe you're in the hospital, in a bed right now. Are you proclaiming Christ wherever it is that you are at this current moment? Is something missing in your life? Is there a lack of passion? Is there passion in your life? Are you passionate to proclaim Christ? Do you want to tell other people about Christ and what he's done in your life? And if you're not, Let's repent today. Let's, let's analyze our heart. Let's analyze what's going on in our lives. Why is it that we do not want to be passionate? Why do we don't want to proclaim Christ with the lost, with the people who are around us? Is there a lack of passion? Have your prayers become focused only on personal needs? We're about to begin prayer meetings here at Acts Reform Church once a month. We're not going to just be all about our felt needs or what we need. We got to be thanksgiving to God. We got to be giving worship to God for what, who he is, first and foremost, not just focusing on what we need, because we're always going to need something, right? Has the excitement of a personal relationship with Christ become mundane? How is it? How is your relationship with Christ? Are you eager to be in the word, to be in prayer, to tell others about what Christ has done in your life? Let's examine ourselves because we grow very um, cold in our faith, in our relationship with God, with Christ. And we got to stir that up. We got to fire that up in us so that we don't stay where we're at. The reason for many is you've lost your purpose. When the Lord called his men, he said in Mark chapter 1, 
verse 17. Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. All of us are evangelists. All of us are missionaries. All of us are called to seek and save the lost, to proclaim Christ, to be tellers of the good news of the gospel. But the question is, are we doing? When Jesus left this earth in Matthew 28, verse 19, he commanded his followers to go and make disciples. The Great Commission, go into the whole of the world and preach the gospel to the, in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, to baptizing in. We're called to make disciples. We're called to go out and tell people to follow Christ. When the apostles taught the church, they told you to buy up every opportunity to share Christ. Colossians chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. Conduct yourself with wisdom towards outside, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt, so that you may know how, to, how, to, how you should respond to each person, how you ought to answer each person. Do you have the ability to give an account for why is it that you believe what you believe in? Are you able to share the, the gospel with other people? How is your evangelism? How can you, how do you, how are you able to have the conversation with your family, your friends, your co-workers, people who you're around? Are you able to do that? You are here to proclaim Christ. If you're not doing it, then you're not fulfilling your purpose. If you're not fulfilling your purpose, then you'll not experience the abundant life God promised. Like a cheetah that doesn't run or a Dotson that doesn't hold babies, Christians who don't proclaim Christ have missed one of their main purposes. Will you get serious about sharing Christ this year? Even though we're in the pandemic, even though we're in COVID, there's still people we interact with. We still have family, friends, Maybe you're still working. You still have people you're in, in, interacting with. Are you making the opportunity to share Christ with them or not? We're, we're made to be proclaimers of Christ because he saved us from such a terrible fate that we had. How can we do that? One, plan. Write down your 10 most wanted lost persons list. Do you have a list of people who you pray for, who you want Christ to save who you always are in contact with, are you, share, are you making the most of the opportunity to be able to share the gospel with them by planning it, by being intentional? Not if it happens, but I want it to happen. I want to make that a, a goal, a priority in my life by writing them their, their names down in the list. Do you pray for them regularly? Are they in your prayers? Those people that you want saved, that you want Christ to save, Christ to save them. Three, do you practice with a believer on how you might share with them? Because sometimes I remember when I was getting started with evangelism, when I was a young believer in the faith, I, I, I listened to Way of the Master, and I would like just go, hey, do you think you're a good person? And I'd just go tell people in the church, you know, and they'd be like, what? What are you talking about? Am I a good person? And then be like, and then just role play with them. You just go, oh, yeah, you're a good person, all right. Well, the Bible, you know, there's none good. You know, have you ever lied? Have you ever stolen? Have you ever looked with lust? You commit adultery with them? You are. So I would go through the commands with them just to practice and then I'd go, if you die today, would you go to heaven and hell? Do you deserve to be rewarded or punished? And then, and then I share the gospel. But you know, God so loved you that he died for you on the cross. And if you repent, put your faith in Christ, you come to become a, you could become a Christian today and have assurance that you will be with God in heaven. Are you comfortable going through the gospel with people and practice with other people? That way, when you are put in a real situation with someone, it flows a lot more smoothly and natural. And you know how to conversate, navigate through the conversation. Number four. Proclaim Christ verbally to glorify God. Sometimes we say, man, let them just see my life, my example. No, it's not about just showing your life, your example. And you should, but you're also supposed to proclaim Christ verbally. That glorifies God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. Share the word of God with people. And that's how their faith might come to be. They might come to be saved by the word of God. And ultimately, preordained, you share God saves. You share, God saves. It's not your, you're not the one who's going to save them. It's God who saves them. Amen? That takes a burden off your shoulders. You're not the one that has to convince them and argument them into heaven. God is just supernaturally does the work of salvation in their lives. 
You don't bring God glory by their response. You glorify God by sharing the gospel. It's your job to share the gospel. Some of the Romans were doing this, but not all of them were proclaiming Christ with the same motives. Yet Paul rejoices Christ is proclaimed. But do not understand Paul, uh, misunderstand Paul here. He's not tossing out doctrine by saying he rejoices that the gospel is preached with good motives or bad motives. He is not saying to unite under Jesus and forget doctrine. I'm not, we're not saying that. Like, oh, we're not tossing out doctrine as if it's not important. Doctrine is important. He's not gathering everyone under any shade of the gospel. No, Paul is saying that when the gospel is taught correctly, the gospel is taught correctly, accurately, according to truth, it doesn't matter to me if, if they're motivated by trying to discredit me or to rub salt in my wounds because I am in prison. I don't care what their motives are. As long as the correct gospel is preached, how can I say that? Because Paul and the rest of the New Testament apostles never allowed an inaccurate gospel to be taught anywhere. Galatians 1, 8 and 9. Remember Paul's word in Galatians 1, 8 and 9. But even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again, now, just in case you didn't get it before, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be accursed. They were defenders of the gospel. He even says it, defense of the gospel right there in verse 16 of 1st of Philippians. I am put here for the defense of the gospel. In Galatia, the, the heretics were telling others that they had to keep the law to be saved. You got to do works to be saved. And that is not the gospel. That's like someone telling you, clean up your act, live worthy, obey the Ten Commandments before God will accept you. Some people think that, oh, I'm not going to go to church. I'm not going to come because I got to clean my life up before I come. No, come as you are. God will do the cleaning in your life. He will do the transformation in your life. It's not up to us. It's God who does the work in our lives. Don't think you have to work your way to heaven or clean your life. You can't, but God can through Christ. God can, through Christ, clean our life up. And he is. That's called sanctification. Justification, you're made right with God. At one point in your life, you receive Christ and you repent. And he's made you right. The second part is the sanctification problem where God is working out your life. He's changing you. He's making you more mature, more like Christ. Remember Jude's word in verse 4. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for his, this condemnation ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. I didn't put that up there, but Jude 4. These people are, said the opposite of those in Galatia. They were saying, as many do today, just accept Jesus in your heart and you're saved no matter how you live. I'm sure you've heard of that before, right? Just accept Jesus in your heart and live any way you want. doesn't matter what you do. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Just pray a prayer and, you're, and you can go on living for yourself. Just pray a prayer. Come to the front, pray this prayer, and do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. Accept Christ as your Savior, not Master, not Lord, because you don't have to submit your heart because it's all grace. Grace, 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 grace. There's no accountability. There's no mastership, lordship of Jesus in your life. Is there lordship of Christ in your life? Ask yourselves, is Christ Lord in my life? Do I submit to his word to his scriptures not to the opinions of a church or a pastor but to his scriptures to his word are we obedient to him or are we disobedient and we want to do things our own way the way that see that, that they may seem fit for us or may seem convenient to us so there's law and then there's grace we can't be all law and no grace we can't be grace and no law in our lives titus 116 Jude says that those who teach are already condemned. Paul points out Titus 1.16, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Maybe you profess to know God. I profess to know God. We profess to know God. But how is our deeds? How is our fruit in our lives? Are we showing fruit? Are we bearing fruit in our lives? We don't want to be disobedient in our lives towards God. No one works their way to heaven. You come to Christ alone to save you, and his salvation is a gracious gift. 
Salvation is a gift from God. There's nothing you can do to earn it. It's a gift from God. But when you have received his gift, his way, by saving faith, God's grace will transform you. Let's go to Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. We're to live lives, godly lives before God, holy lives. And it is still God at work in us. It's not us mercering up all this effort to do this. It's God at work in us through the Holy Spirit that indwells us as believers, right? If we have, if we have been born again, the Holy Spirit indwells us, and he gives us that power, that ability to live righteous, godly lives. So as Paul rejoices over mixed motives, he is not tossing out doctrine. Paul is not saying that false. Just accept Jesus Pray this prayer and you'll be and you're in. Confess your sins, walk this aisle, do these good works, or just believe Jesus died and rose from the dead. He's not saying that that gospel is acceptable today because it's not acceptable today. Paul is not diminishing the sovereign salvation of God, whereby God's own choosing the Holy Spirit regenerates a heart, creating a willingness in the heart for a person to submit to Christ, follow Christ, and obey Christ. And in saving faith, Follow God's word in directing repentance. Paul in no way is lessening the importance of an accurate view of the gospel. If the Roman Christians were cheesing the gospel, Paul would not write these things he's about to write. On the other hand, Paul is rejoicing that the true gospel is being proclaimed, even though it's not always with the right motive. Sometimes we do things that we do them, but we don't have the right motives behind them. So what were the right motives and the wrong ones? The actual order of these verses is reversed in some versions because of a few Greek texts uh, confuse the order, listing verses 16 after verse 17. But even though the word order may be different, the meaning is clear. So let's study verses 15 to 17 in a unique way. Since there's an obvious comparison between the right and wrong motives in these verses, I'd like to explain the author's intent meaning by comparing each aspect of the right motive and each aspect of the wrong motive. So let's look at the... The, the hearts. First, compare the hearts. Verse 15 says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from good will. The word from envy or from good will are both from the same Greek word. Paul usually is saying envy and good will both have the same source. What? The heart of a person. We all have hearts. This is where our intentions, our motives, is who we are, our heart. The heart of a person. Paul here is comparing the hearts of those with good motives and those with wrong motives. Good motives and wrong motives. The wrong heart is continuously preaching Christ from a heart of envy and strife. The envy exposes the jealousy of the believers in Rome over Paul. They were struggling with his apostolic power and authority. They were jealous of his immense gifts and success in ministry. They were battling with salvation apart from the works of the law. Salvation without Jewish tradition, and they blame Paul. He was stealing their place of prominence and undermining their status. They were just jealous that Paul was having success in ministry, as some pastors today and preachers today might have jealousy over another. Why is his church so much bigger? Why is he doing, doing this and writing books and going here and going there? They were having jealousy of Paul. This happens so often in ministry, it's frightening. A new and talented musician attends the church, and the existing band is threatened so that they focus on all his faults. Or a faithful teacher attends the group and the current teachers never use him, not to prove his character, but out of envy. Or a new mom works really well with her kids, but other moms point out her faults instead of esteeming her. That is envy. And that is easy to creep up in our hearts. We see someone doing better than us, we're like, we get jealous, we get envious, and we start looking at all the wrong things that they may have in their life. Paul says, this is envy, and it also includes in verse 15, a heart of strife. The strife in verse 15 describes a heart of rivalry. They want to go toe-to-toe with Paul. Fellow teachers or missionaries who are not proclaiming Christ for God's glory, but lurking in their heart is a desire to do better than Paul. Strife means to stir up trouble. It literally means friction. Paul says, these men were not content to see me in chains. They want to rub the chains in my flesh. Their heart is to undermine thrust in Paul. They just, they weren't happy with Paul. They didn't like Paul. 
reminding each of you, you can do what is right. You can commit to teach God's word. You can live godly life, yet you yet still have people, even believers, attack you. Have you ever had anyone attack you within the church? That could happen. Like spreading lies about a person. There were believers in Rome saying God has stopped Paul from ministry by placing him under arrest. Maybe you're going through a trial in your life, a hardship, a difficult, and oh, that's God's punishment on you. God is doing that because you're doing something wrong in your life. That's not the case. God may be doing that in your life for a different option. He's just working out your salvation. He's making you more mature. It's growing you. Things that happen bad in your life does not mean that you've sinned or you've done something wrong. As some people might say, man, Paul's in prison. He must be doing something wrong. God must not be happy with him if he's in prison. But that's not the correct theology to have. Ministry is based on trust. Sadly, when, ser- when the, a servant has spent years establishing a ministry of integrity, it's hurtful and difficult when that foundation of trust is attacked. But, on, but this is exactly what's happening with Paul. On the other hand, there's some preaching Christ and Rome with hearts of goodwill. There are some that are doing it out of goodwill. Good- goodwill is a heart of contentment and satisfaction. They're pleased to share Christ no matter if they're noticed or not. Is that in our lives today? Are we, are we pleased to preach Christ whether we're noticed or not? It doesn't matter if they're compared to Paul or not. These are sisters who trust when, they, when the guy they, they like asks someone else out. These are Christians who don't care who gets the credit in ministry. Something gets done, they don't care. This is the leader who's not concerned if no one ever thanks him for his labors. They're satisfied, content to preach Christ, serve Christ, volunteer for Christ, and let God get all the glory. May we have that attitude in our hearts as well today. And we thank you here, myself and Gerardo, as pastors, if you're serving in the church. Thank you, but we should be doing it for Christ, not for people to see how we're doing these things, right? That should be in our heart, in our, in our, in our motives. Parents, your teen comes home excited about what they've learned, but you've been telling them from that same truth for 12 years or for many years. What do you say to your student? I've been teaching you that truth all your life, or that's awesome, son. Praise God. Sometimes people, sometimes people are told something and they don't get it, and then later on they tell you, oh, but I've been telling you that. Examine your heart. Is there any envy towards others? Do you even try to take other believers, uh, make other believers look bad? Is there strife? Are you jealous for who gets credit? Are you more concerned with appearing good to others or giving God all the glory? Let the ugliness of a wrong heart make you weep. Reinstate your desire to be content and satisfied with the good work of Christ. No matter who he ministers through or how he accomplishes his work, examine your heart. Let's examine our hearts. Why it is, is it that we do what we do, whether we're leading certain ministries or we're serving in the church, picking up something on the floor, picking up a chair, whatever it is that we're doing, leading a study. Why do we do what we do? Do we do it for God and his glory or do we do it so that other people can see us and we can feel good about ourselves? Compare the motives. Read verses 16 and 17. It says, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in imprisonment. So out of love or out of selfish ambition? Out of love or out of selfish ambition? Both out of are the same Greek word telling us Paul is exposing the right motives and the wrong motives. On the one hand, the wrong motive is selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is used of an employee who, who works solely to advance himself by acquiring wealth and prestige. The Greek word exposes someone who's willing to ruthlessly get ahead at any cost. This is the no one is going to stand in my way motive of self-advancement. It's all about me. I want to get there and I'm going to do it at whatever cost it takes, but I will get there. This is the person who battles everyone in order for self to get the spotlight. And we've seen it. I've seen it in churches in the past. Worship, you know, leading. So-and-so wants to lead and they're getting, in, you know, and there's jealousy and rivalry in, the, in that. Or even in preaching, <coughs> pastors, teachers, ministry leaders, they're trying to outshine one another. And it's not about that. It's about Christ being glorified. Him getting the spotlight. 
Him being the center of all that we do, not us. These Roman Christians were using Paul's incarceration as an opportunity to pr promote their own prestige. He's in jail and we're not. Their motive was to try to assert Paul's authority and gain positions of influence in the church during his absence. They were far from Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. And we're going to eventually hit, go to Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. It says, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do we consider others more important than, one, than our own selves? Do we put others' interests before our very own? And if we don't, we should repent because it's, they're calling us, Scripture calls us that we should not be doing things out of our selfishness. We should be putting others' concerns ahead of our own. Paul clarifies by adding the selfish ambition in verse 17. See it rather from than from pure motives. Literally, Paul means not sincere. Remember when Paul prayed in verse 10 that the Philippians would be sincere or pure before God. This is what was in the back of his mind, that they'd have pure motives before God who knows all the hearts. You may be able to fool the pastors, the deacons, your other brothers and sisters, but you cannot fool God. We cannot fool God from our motives, what's in our heart. If you have a sensitive heart, you might struggle to, to, with your motives. Your, your conscience might condemn you to the point you're, that, you're, uh, that you're, uh, you don't want to be in ministry, in life and in ministry. You can't serve because you have mixed motives. You don't feel right. Why should you do if you have that in your heart? Man, I want to do it, but I don't feel like I might be doing it in the right way. If you don't know your motives, ask God to reveal whether they're good or bad. If he doesn't expose anything to, com uh, anything to confess, then minister as if your motives are good, trusting God to expose anything along the way. If you don't know your own heart, trust God to expose what needs correction, but you do not let the idea of wrong motives keep you from service for Christ or obedience to Christ. Sometimes that stops us from doing things in the church. Oh, I don't want to serve because I don't know my heart. My heart might be wrong, but... If it is wrong, then don't do it. If you know that you know that you're not doing it the right, in the right motives, in the right sincere motive, then stay away from doing it. But if you're like, oh, I don't know, I might, I might have motives wrong, but I still want to do it. I feel like I might. I have good motives. There's, it's, it's not fully clear. Do it. Don't let that stop you from service for Christ or obedience to Christ. God says, obey. The devil says, delay. The devil's the one who wants to stop you from being involved in church and in ministry. He's the one who wants you out there doing other things and not advancing the gospel, not being occupied with the proclamation of Christ. On the other hand, verse 16 says that those with love for Paul had spiritual motives. They were grateful for Paul and longed for him to be released and enjoyed the freedom that they had to proclaim Christ. They also hoped their newfound courage and boldness would bring Paul fresh encouragement during his incarceration. And not only would those with good motives love Paul, but they'd also love their hearers. They were not using their hearers to promote themselves. They were sacrificing. They were giving and proclaiming Christ to others out of loving hearts and concern for their lost condition. Is that our heart right here? Are we sacrificing? Are we giving? And are we proclaiming Christ to others out of the loving hearts of concern for their lost condition? Because we care that about them. Because we want them to see Christ for who he is and come to know him as their Savior, as their Lord. And lastly, third, compare the goals. Again, verse 16 and 17, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Those who were in the flesh were actually thinking about ways to cause Paul distress in jail. Thinking tells us they were planning, they were scheming, Ways to cause Paul pain. These true Christians were continually preaching Christ with authority, literally making Christ fully known, yet doing so with a goal to cause Paul misery. Think about that, how, how kind of odd that is. They're preaching Christ, the message of the gospel, yet their, their, their goal is to cause Paul misery. Distress in my imprisonment is to place pressure on another. They want Paul's chains to be even heavier. They want to make his chain stab his heart, not merely rub his wrist. Distress literally means to raise the pressure. They want to get Paul under Paul's skin to bug him, to make him suffer even more. You can't hurt a computer 
or grieve a theological concept, but you could hurt a man, and they wanted to hurt Paul. On the other hand, those who were in the spirit knew Paul was sovereignly placed in jail to preach the gospel. They participate, the participle knowing tells us that they know Paul was in jail to preach the gospel, yet they still know it is a fact. So God sovereignly placed Paul in jail. One, he wrote most of the New Testament while he was in jail. Secondly, he was reaching out to the Roman Empire, the, the household of Caesar. They were coming to know Christ. So God had a purpose and a plan for putting Paul in prison. Verse 16. Appointed means God put Paul in prison to proclaim the gospel. God literally set Paul there. Despite its appearance, this was God's brilliant strategy, reminding us all of our circumstances our circumstances are in God's hand and God uses them to advance his gospel. Wherever it is that we're at, it is God's purpose that you be there. Are we content being there? And are we going to utilize that circumstance for the glory of God that Christ may be proclaimed? When we cooperate, we'll have joy. So God placed Paul in prison to, to verse 16 to defend the gospel. He was there to correct the errors about the gospel. He's teaching any way beside God's way through Christ is the wrong way. Those Roman Christians who were proclaiming Christ to their neighbors with pure motives know God appointed Paul to be placed under house arrest in Rome for two years so Paul could proclaim Christ to the leadership of Roman Empire, even Caesar's family. God has purposely put Paul there for the advancement of the gospel, for the progress of the gospel. So while Paul's under jail in Rome, some Roman Christians from the heart of envy and strife with the motive of selfish ambitions are preaching Christ in a scheme to cause Paul pain and belittle his ministry. Others believers are continually proclaiming Christ from a heart of goodwill, out of a motive of love, knowing for a fact that God placed Paul in prison in order to defend the gospel to the leadership of Rome. So, why would Christians say such things? Why would a Christian say that and act that way towards another Christian? Why do Christians say those things? We know from the letter to the Romans there are Jewish Christians who still want to require Gentile Christians to eat like the Jews and keep their Jewish traditions. There are also Gentiles who felt a free from the law. They wanted to force the Jews to reject all Jewish practice. So now the Jewish Christians would especially glory that Paul was in prison. They could cast doubt upon his totally free from the law approach. They could say, see, Paul doesn't keep the Old Testament law. Paul taught Gentiles they didn't have to adopt Jewish tradition. So God put him in prison for it. God took him out of the picture. They were pretty much wanting to mess up the gospel. No matter what they, what's really happening in Rome, we know the fact that there, there are genuine Christians sharing the true and accurate gospel of Christ from self-spirit-filled motives and others sharing the true gospel out of flesh-driven motives. So how does Paul respond? Verse 18, let's read verse 18, the perspective of Paul. What then? Says verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. What then, we'd say, who cares? Paul's saying, who cares? What is my feelings on this? In every way I rejoice. Paul's response to the frustration experience is a model of grace under pressure. It gives us an insight into what motives, which, direct, which directed his own ministry. What then means, how does this affect me. How does this affect Paul? How does he react to this? Paul says, I rejoice. Again, Philippians is all about joy and rejoicing in the Lord, no matter what circumstances we are in. He's rejoicing. Christ is preached. How could anyone say that? How could anyone say, I rejoice? Paul's answer is, Christ is preached. Paul is not rejoicing over the false motives of men who regard him as a rival rather than a colleague. He exposes them as a self-absorbed individual as they were, but rather than allow their sin to eat away at his soul, discourage him and potentially introduce a note of cynicism into his life. And sometimes that happens when we're being critiqued, when we're being maybe slandered or told lies about us. We get cynical and we get very angry at that person. But let it not be so. Let it not be sticking on us. Let us forgive them and move on and be concerned with the gospel, with the proclamation of Christ. Paul has refused to allow himself to be deviated from the main business of his ministry, which is exalting the name of Christ and sharing the message of salvation. Paul has 
The priority is the main thing as the main thing in his life. Some of you have come from, a, from, a difficult, from difficult churches. You've been hurt or treated badly. Some of us have been treated badly in churches in the past. Learn from Paul here. The wrong motives of shallow men must never be allowed to become the, the, the determining factor in our attitude in ministry. It's very easy to develop a heart of bitterness when we experience the errors of others professing, professing Christians. Maybe it was a pastor or a leader in church that treated you wrongly. Don't let it, that cynicism, that bitterness creep into you. Forgive them and move on in the main thing of proclaiming the gospel and being about Christ's glory in everything that we do. What we see, Paul, is a recognition of false motives and errors, but the response of Paul is a heart filled with the grace of Christ. Showing us as long as the concept of our lives is to honor Christ, no matter what, we will be safeguarded from bitterness. If we're about Christ and his business, we're gonna, everything else will just slip and fall away from us. We won't get caught up on those things. Motives matter, but we must never allow the motives of others to devour us. We must make our hearts a sanctuary of love for Christ that remains untainted. We must bar everything from the sanctuary of our hearts except trust in Christ and love for Christ. Amen? Trust for Christ and love for Christ. Like melted gold, the dross of bitterness and hurts must be skimmed from our hearts. And I, and I know it's hard when someone talks bad about you, when someone slanders you, when someone treats you unfairly or wrong, it hurts us because we're human beings and we're, it, just not, it doesn't come right with us. But look at what Paul's going through. He's in jail and they're talking bad about him. Yet he's still joyful. He still rejoices because his eyes are set upon Christ. People are going to hurt you, brother, sister. Christians will trash you, pastor, but God allows all of it to make you better, not bitter. Amen. Protect your heart. Confess the hurt. Turn from bitterness and keep your heart free from everything but the love of God and the trust of his purposes and plans. Motives are important. Motives determine reward. Anything done for the glory of God and the power of the Spirit will be rewarded. Cleaning, driving, cooking, working, schooling, but anything done for any other self-motive done in our own strength will be burnt up. Motives are important. Don't get me wrong. Motives are important. But the message is even more important than the motive. The message is more important than the motive. Since the message, when given accurately, is so powerful, it can be used of God to save souls. Even when the motive is wrong, even the selfishly motivated preacher can still be used of God. Not as much as when he, his heart seeks God's glory and the power of the Spirit. There's a lot of pastors and preachers out there who God still uses, people are still saved, but their motives are not right. And only God knows our hearts, right? God knows each and one of all of our hearts. We can hide it from other men and people, but we can't hide it from God. So Paul says, who cares whether in pretense or truth? Pretense means to hide from the light. It is fake, phony, hypocritical, and false. Even if the motive of a believer is fake, I don't care as long as the message goes out accurately. Whether in phoniness or in truthfulness, I want the truth of the gospel to be proclaimed. Why? Because the passion of my life is being fulfilled. The good news is being continually proclaimed with accuracy to the lost. Paul wasn't concerned about himself. It wasn't about Paul. He knew he, he, knew he was expendable. God would vindicate him in due time. So Paul was free to have joy. It's not about us. It's about Christ. The gospel is the dividing light. The true gospel is what unites, what we unite by or divide by. An accurate gospel means the difference between heaven and hell. Between true salvation and phony religion. An accurate gospel means the difference between a real believer and a make-believer, a fake believer. And the true gospel divides. It's offensive, it's God-centered, and people humbling. The true gospel is the hill all Christians must die upon. The gospel is essential, it's, it's very important, and we will fight for it. For the gospel, not for other things. Secondary, tertiary things, we can agree to disagree. Inside the local church, we're, te we we're to teach one interpretation of it absolutely always right. If, and anyone who disagrees with a clear portion of God's word is absolutely wrong. Outside the local church, we, re we reject all those who teach a false gospel. But we fellowship with anyone who's born again and proclaims a true gospel regardless of doctrinal differences. We may have a different eschatology, but as long as the gospel, we agree with that, it's okay. That's what's important, the gospel, the, the unity in the gospel. 
We need discernment. This is why Paul prayed in verse 9, their love would abound in all discernment. Never affirm error. Never be indifferent about truth. Never say doctrine doesn't matter. Don't say doctrine doesn't matter. It does matter. But as you grow deep in accurate truth, you must also abound in sacrificial Christ-like love. How is our sacrificial Christ-like love? Anyone who is genuinely saved, we can have fellowship with, even if we disagree, even if their motives are wrong. But if they don't teach or believe a true gospel, then we must not affirm them. The gospel is the dividing line. The gospel was so powerful, it could be shared with bad motives and still change lives, which Paul which caused Paul to say, my heart is filled with joy. Let's read verse 18. The only, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice, and I will rejoice. Paul says, I'm continually glad now, and I will be glad. Paul's telling us he is making a, voli a, volitional, a volitional decision that, of his will to be glad in the future, no matter what happens. Paul says here that latter, whether I live or die, I'm going to be glad or joyful the gospel was preached, the good motives or bad motives. He's just happy that the gospel is advancing, that the progress of the gospel is going forward. Paul's not looking at life through rose-colored glasses, but at God's bigger picture. God works all things together for good. What a gracious heart. Oh, Father, give me Paul's heart. May we have Paul's heart here at Action Reformed Church. And Paul is in your face to all those with bad motives seeking to cause him hardship. Paul says he rejoices. How should they feel? They're seeing Paul in prison and yet he's full of joy. That must probably upset them even more. It's like when, you know, someone is saying things bad about you, yet you're full of joy. And can, you can care less what people think. That's how our attitude should be. It's like when a kid's insulted and you said, I know you are, but what am I? You can't defeat me. That's what Paul is saying there in, that, in some sense. What grace, godliness, and a heart of joy, Paul says, I rejoice. Shrugs off the animosity of celebrating the true gospel has been preached to the needy lost. What a great attitude, the very attitude needed for the Philippians themselves to get along with each other. How are your motives, brothers and sisters? How are your motives? What is in our hearts this morning? What is our motives? How is our heart? Those who understand the true gospel can live with passion and right priorities. Understand we're calling people to Christ through faith and repentance, which are both gifts from God. We don't tell people to accept Christ. We call people to turn to Christ and submit to him. Saving faith is total dependence. Dying to self and relying upon Christ and repentance is a 180 direction change from living your way to following God's word. Only God can save, so we call people to cry out to save them through the work of Christ alone. Sharing the gospel of Christ results in joy. Are you sharing the gospel? Maybe you don't have joy because you're not sharing the gospel. Don't buy into whoever dies with the most toys wins. Are we all caught up on possessions, buying and getting things? Don't fall for that mentality. You've been bought by Christ with your new theme is whoever shares Christ the most wins whoever shares christ the most wins since those who do live with the most joy and die with great reward god is working in your life not merely in spite of your trial but through it like paul being in jail so can he share the gospel with the future leaders of role your trial is a vehicle for god to glorify himself to build up believers and save non-believers don't miss the joy by focusing on your trial Focus on the opportunity God has given you through your trial to show Christ off and share the gospel. Right motives and faithful dependence result in reward. Joy and reward comes as your motive is to, to glorify God and your strength is the Holy Spirit through you. The loss of joy and lack of reward comes when you live for yourself and rely on your own strength. Let us not rely on our own strength and live for our own selves. The focus of the detractors was on Paul, his imprisonment with a slanderous scheme to cause him pain. Paul's focus, on the other hand, was the true message of the gospel and the person of Christ. Your focus determines your joy and reward. What are you focused on? What is your mind and your eyes set on? Is it on Christ? And if it is, and on the proclamation of Christ, then you will have much joy and your reward will be great in heaven. Lastly, 
only those whose submission to Christ go to heaven. If your heart is continuously focused on yourself, which a lot of times it is, we quickly focus on ourselves, you may be exposing a lack of saving grace. You may not have a new heart nor be born again. You may be only an external Christian, but not an internal new creation. Again, not everyone who comes to church is a Christian. Just because you go to McDonald's doesn't make you a hamburger, right? So because you come to church does not make you a Christian. If you're truly saved, then you will want right motives. You will want to do what Paul is doing here. That in the midst of his circumstances, he's in prison, he's in, he's jailed up, he's getting slandered, yet he still has joy. He still wants Christ proclaimed. He still has his focus on Christ, not on his own self. You will want to serve Christ in a way that you can. You will want to submit to any commandment he gives you. God's commandments should not be heavy or burdensome to the believer. We should want to carry them out with joy, with gladness. Yes, Lord. Wherever you say, Jesus, I will do. Not because I have to, but because I get to, because of what you've done for me on the cross. You saved me. You died for me. How can I not live for you now? Amen? So turn to Christ today, right now. If you're not a Christian, if you're listening, if you're watching, repent. Turn to Christ today. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. And if you are a Christian, repent. If there's anything that was said today that is, that is that convicted you, that made you feel uncomfortable. Today is a day that you can come to God and say, God, help me to be able to fo focus on you, focus on proclaiming the good news of the gospel to the people you want me to share it with, whether, whatever circumstances I find myself in. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, Lord, asking you, Lord, to put right mo motives in our hearts, Lord. We want to serve you, want to live for you. We want to be obedient to your word. We want to preach Christ to people who need to hear it desperately, who are dying and who will be going to hell, Lord. Give us that joy in our hearts to be able to serve you, Lord, to live for you, Lord, and to do it, Lord, out of a gladful heart, Lord. Whatever circumstance we find ourselves, Lord, let us not get so caught up in looking at it from our own angle, Lord, and seeing that uh, whatever trials that we are going through, Lord, that we may look to you, Christ, knowing that you love us, that you care for us, that you will bring us out of these things, Lord, and that you will um, ultimately, Lord... Um, You've given us the greatest gift, Lord, which is salvation found in Jesus Christ. So, Lord, uh, bless this time that we have together to continue to worship you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.